following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Have you ever met somebody who is dying for a fight? It's like they're just waiting for you to say something they disagree with so they can jump down your throat or even worse, punch you in the face. A a lot of passionate people are like this. Uh, Currently, we see a lot of people who are passionate about their political views on all sides. Uh, Maybe if you've watched any of this sort of endless cycle of news panelists lately, man, they are just vigilant listening for something or someone at whom they can throw a counterpunch. And they're just dying for a fight. A lot of passionate religious people are like this too. They're dying for a fight because they know that they are right about everything. There's no error in them at all and they're willing to die for it. This happens with people from all different sorts of faith backgrounds. So many come into conversations kind of loaded for bear. You know what that means? It means they're bringing in the big guns. It's like their nuclear option. They're ready to take out anything that threatens them at all. Now, I'll speak only for Christians, as that's my faith tradition, but all too often, Christians justify this offensive behavior by saying they're defending the gospel. And I want to say just a few things as we get rolling. If we're going to speak about God, or on God's behalf, I don't believe we should ever be on the defensive. First of all, because God is love, and true love is life-giving and not self-defending. Love by nature gives itself away if it is love, and God is love. Now, it does say in 1 Corinthians 13 that love always protects, but I hope you understand that it's not saying about yourself. Love always protects oneself. It's love always protects the other. So perhaps religious people are defensive because they think they're protecting God. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, if God needs protecting, God ain't much of a God. I don't think we're meant to defend the gospel. Fact is, I think that the gospel, this is the good news of great joy for all people, if the gospel is lived, I'm pretty sure it defends itself. Other Christians explain their offensive behavior, their willingness to be aggressive, as a desire to take back. I want to take back my school for Christ. Take back my land for Christ. Take back my denomination. I wonder if they would consider that this is actually at the root of some temptations that Jesus faced. The temptation that Satan tempted Jesus with was a temptation to take back some power, take back some dominion, take back some territory. I just haven't been able to find the chapter or verse that says, uh, where Jesus says, let's take back that land from the Samaritans. Or the chapter and verse where Jesus says, ah, let's infiltrate Roman power structures, gain political power for God. Or the passage that says, let's take back the temple. And under threat of excommunication, let's declare our interpretation of the Torah most right. I just can't find where taking over and taking back is actually written. But I can tell you chapter and verse for where Jesus says, put away your sword, John 18, 11. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, Mark 12, 17. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, Matthew 23, 13. Or if anyone wants to follow me, they don't need to take back. They need to take up their cross, Luke 9, 23. 
And do you know the only time that Jesus ever attributed another person's words as, as being directly as a threat or temptation from Satan was when Peter tried to convince Jesus to, to protect his life, to defend his life, rather than to lay it down. Matthew sixteen twenty three, I'm supposed to die. Get behind me, Satan. People like to claim that they, they are being faithful to God when they defend their convictions. Nations want to enlist their gods to overpower what their greed wants to own. Religions want to put the name of God on their tendency to take back and take over. But see, Jesus, he's just crazy different. Jesus invites us to lay down our lives and to let go of our power. And I believe using his name for anything other than this, it is using it in vain or for wrong purposes. Now, the most common way to package this, package this pattern is a call to lay down our lives for Christ. And perhaps some of us are called to lay down our lives, our actual life, for Christ. But I'm telling you, a lot of people who get to laying down their lives for Christ end up justifying picking up their weapon of choice in the process. And again, not to be too much of a stickler, but there's no record of Jesus ever wearing a holster. So today I want to invite us to consider if it might not be better news for the whole world if we consider going one better than laying down our lives for Christ and instead commit to learning how to lay down our lives like Christ. Because if there was ever anyone who had the right to call out the big guns, if there was ever a man who was passionate about what he said, a man who had no error in him, and who it seems to me had a right to fight back and defend himself, because he was absolutely right. And he was being wronged. If there was someone who knew he was on the right side of history and had a right to fight for it, I think it was Jesus. But you know what's crazy? He didn't go down fighting the people who crucified him. He went down loving them. So I want to pray for us as we dig into this today. Because this is big. This is a pattern that, that we, we, are, we are saying, I mean, you don't see on the bulletin or outside like, come and die. People freak out. But I think it's a problem, and it's, it's why we think we now can fight rather than love. Why we defend rather than let go. Why we take back rather than lay down. So let me pray for us. God, we come to you today as people who, well, probably some of us are loaded for bear. Some of us have been vigilant listening. Some of us are dying for a fight. With people across the aisle, people of another faith, people of the same faith and a different conviction, people across our dining room table. God, I, I'm wondering if your Holy Spirit couldn't teach us a better way today, teach us your way. If you could come show us your kind of passion about how, it, how to love and not just fight. God, I pray that you would make me little and that you would be big and that you would chaperone all the words where they need to go. I know not all these words are for everybody, but some might be. So I pray, God, that you would take the little words and that you would bring them to the right people and that they would find good soil and that they would bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what we could ask or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. When I first met my husband, um, I was a Minnesota Vikings fan, and he was devoted to the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> I know I'm a rough crowd. Um, 
seeking to make some sort of connection with this man that I was just beginning to date, um, I, I thought I could reveal like our mutual love and interest in football by wearing a football t-shirt. I had the phrase on it, I root for the Vikings and anyone who plays the Packers. <laughs> Needless to say, I wrongly discerned my outfit and um, the humor that it might hold for him, and I can testify that our relationship radically improved when that garment <laughs> no longer was in my closet. You see, for me, football was only a pastime. It wasn't a passion. There was little uh, commonality in our approaches to the game. Um, I I enjoyed having the game on in the background. He wanted it to be on the foreground uh, when it was on on Sunday. I I knew some of the players' names. Uh, He knew all their histories and statistics. Uh, I sometimes turn off the television when my team is losing. Passionate fans believe their loyalty in the living room, their cheers, their clenched fists, their wishing actually alters the outcome of the game. Passionate devotion looks very different than just like a fickle fan base. Passion is something that overtakes you. It's often expressed as a strong and barely controllable emotion. And and if someone is passionately devoted to something or someone, there's generally some verifiable evidence in their life. Passionately devoted fans regularly testify to their commitment through t-shirts and bumper stickers and showing up for the game and shouting down the opposition. When one is passionate, their passion shows up in real life. This is, however, not the only definition of passion. The word passion is also used to describe the suffering and death of Jesus on behalf uh, 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 of God and to reveal the love of God to this world. Jesus' passion went beyond an emotion, and it took the form of a visible act of sacrifice. That is another word, uh, another way that we can describe passion. And unlike our human passion that often causes us to just root for our home team, Jesus' passion moved him to advocate for the whole world, even for the opposing or opposition team. Things like this were said about his passion. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This was his passion. And we ought to lay down our lives for our uh, siblings. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. It was his passion. Pray for those who persecute you. This is his passion. So that you may be called children of your Father in heaven. Because he, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends a, a rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do this. Religious people are often passionately devoted to their God. They, they have a passion. They, they show up with t-shirts and bumper stickers, and then they proceed to shout down the opposition. But Jesus calls us to be better news by inviting us into a different kind of passionate devotion. Passionate devotion in the pattern of Jesus the Christ requires that we don't just root for our own team and shout down the opposition, but rather we choose to lay down our lives and our living, even for the opposition. In this way, by life laying down loving, rather than shouting down the opposition, we reveal Jesus to the world. 
The world that is in such desperate need of more than just a fickle fan base or a shouting devotee. Philippians 2, the passage that was just read, it gives us another peek at this passion. Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in in laying down his life, Scripture says that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we get healed. By his passion, we're healed. You see, and this is important, Jesus didn't lay down his life for good and righteous people. Jesus laid down his life for sinners. People who had lives that were filled with transgressions and iniquities. This is what's referred to as his passion. A life laying down love for screw-ups. For me. For you. And he didn't go down fighting the people whose sin crucified him. He went down loving them. He said in John 10, 18, it was just read, I'm choosing this. I choose to lay my life down. No one's taken my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I mean, he could choose the nuclear option here. But I choose to go down loving people rather than to go down fighting with them. What does it mean to lay down our lives like Christ? It means that we choose to go down loving people rather than to choose to go down fighting with them. And you see, I think this wasn't just a one and done. I think we are the now body of the eternal Christ. I think we're supposed to continue this pattern, this life. We're supposed to choose this passion for a life laying down love for the world, for friends, for sure, for sinners, absolutely, even for enemies. Our lives are meant to reveal this life laying down passion. This passion is meant to be the paradigm. This is the model, the stereotype, uh, the standard, the, the prototype, the pattern we're to follow. We're not meant to be shouting down the opposition. We're meant to be loving them. To not just people who, be people who are loaded for bear, ready to lay down our lives just for Christ in any means necessary, but rather we're supposed to be a people that are overloaded with love for sinners. That we're so compelled to lay down our life like Christ. This is the better news. Oh, that we would become a people that are not so much dying for the fight. Aren't we tired of Christians who are dying for the fight? What if we became a people who lovingly lay down our lives for others, even enemies? I actually think this would be such better news for the whole world if we loved like this. I mean, think about the better news if followers of Jesus actually followed this pattern of Jesus. That we loved like him, not just when we're in a good mood, but when we're feeling defensive. When we're in pain, when it's costing us something. What if then even we humbled ourselves and became servants of others, even to the point that we would lay down our lives? Oh, greater love has no one than this. What if we weren't just dying for a fight, but rather dying for the love? And I'm not saying that we all have to physically die to show this greater love. It might be that God calls you to do that. 
But I do believe that we are called to choose to lay down our living day after day in countless ways. This is the way we're going to convince the world that we have better news. What if we became a people so filled with passion, the passion of Jesus, that we were willing to lay down our living for people, friends certainly, but can you imagine the news if followers of Christ quit defending themselves? And they started to actually lay down their lives for the opposition, for those who are trying to crucify them. Now, there's no official playbook for how we go about laying down our living for other people. I mean, you could read the whole scripture. Um, it, it, but I, I'd like you to discern your own specifics. And that's because I, I believe you're in a, you can be in a real relationship with God. I, I don't want to create another six things you have to do or another nine uh, sacrifices that have to be made for you to be declared good. I think mean, you, you know people at your work or across your dining room table or in your own families you've got to do this work with. Okay? And so you've got to discern what that looks like. But I do think there is a pattern uh, and a way in which we might be able to, to follow Jesus in at least a kind of heart sort of way, um, even if there isn't an exact list. Because if we can follow him, then we can learn how to die like he died. Because as my friend Tony Zamblay would say, and you can put it up on the slide, he says, Jesus taught us not how to just live well, but he actually showed us how to die well. And so we should know how he died. Last week I shared a verse that's usually just read at Christmas, at the birth of Jesus. I told you it should be read year-round. This week I'm going to talk about a, a, a verse that's read, verses that are read mainly at Easter about the death of Christ that I think should be read year-round or lived into year-round. And so this morning, I want to walk through the last seven statements that Jesus made while he was dying, while he was laying down his life for the world. I do have a sheet if you want it. It's up here on the music stand. If when you come up, the things that are on the screen are on here. And so if you want to make a run at this, not just this morning, but for real, um, I, you can take one with you. Um, it just kind of goes over these sort of, this paradigm that I'm, I'm hopefully going to offer in a decent way um, to see if we can't reveal or live into some of this passion. That we too are filled with such a great love that we would lay down our lives for our neighbors, our friends, and even our opposition. But before I go into that, I want to name two things. Father Richard Rohr, he says this, you cannot think your way into a new way of living. You have to live your way into a new way of thinking. None of this will change you if you think about it. Okay? This will only change if you try to live this sort of stuff. This is uber pragmatic. None of us get better at learning how to lay down our living for another by thinking it's a good idea. We learn how to lay down our lives for others by actually practicing it in a three-dimensional life. The second thing I want you to know is it's natural for you to avoid this because it's really hard. Like, there are reasons we don't talk about death and dying too much in church. Life, life, life. So great, right? It's natural for us to avoid anything that might cause us to lose something or to, to, to feel pain or, or that. It's actually a leftover survival mechanism from our early days as humans. We're like losing stuff like shelter or the antelope you just got or whatever like could go bad for you. And so your brain early on in the evolution of our brain came up with this really nice little simple system um, that, that gives you a reward if something is pleasurable and actually causes it to feel bad when things are not pleasurable. So eventually your brain can think without you, which 80% of your brain does. And so it, this is the, the dopamine cycle. And it's like this. If you go and something felt good, you're like, I love that donut, love that dinner. 
Love being included by that friend. Love that worship service. Your brain gives you dopamine. It's like, ah, it loves dopamine. It feels good when you get dopamine in your brain. Dopamine is also a predictive drug. So if something felt good once, the next time you even think about that thing, your brain gives you a tiny little drop of dopamine. And then like a little crumb trail. Let's do this thing again. We won't even have to think about moving into things that are pleasurable. We will just find ourselves eating the donut. Right? This is because our brain likes to have things that it gets to keep and that were pleasurable. Our brain does the opposite thing as well when things are bad. So when things are bad, you experience something that feels hard or painful. Or, ugh, your brain takes out a little bit of dopamine. And then you're like, right? It just feels that way. Like it feels bad in your body. It literally feels bad. Like you're not making it up. It has a feeling to it. And it's also predictive. So if something hurt you in the past or was hard for you in the past or was painful or difficult in the past, anytime you think about doing that painful thing again, your brain will withdraw a little bit of dopamine and make, I just don't feel like doing it. Which is why so many people don't come to church. Because the dopamine cycle is predictable. If you've been hurt by the church, you've been hurt by somebody that shouted down your opposition, then anytime you even think about going into that sort of setting, the dopamine drive feels bad, right? This is a real biological thing that is happening in our bodies. Now, the dopamine cycle, actually, I think God intended for good things because then when we would taste and see that God is good, ah, and when there were things that were harmful for us, ah, right? But the enemy tries to distort and destroy every masterpiece that God designs. And the enemy, I think, exploits the dopamine cycle to keep us addicted to behaviors that give us a moment of pleasure, even when they're bad for us. And the enemy exploits the dopamine cycle to keep us from much of the hard work of the gospel, definitely laying down one's life. It makes it feel wrong, even when it's actually good for the whole world, if we do it. This is the exploitation of the cycle. I'm telling you this because unless we become smarter than our brains, we're not going to live the gospel. Your brain is going to think without you and it's going to tell you that certain things are good and bad just based on your flesh, not based on anything that happens to be true. And so I I want us to become smarter than our brain um, and so that even when it feels wrong, to let go of power, to, to, to lay down our lives, we would be kin- continue to do that like Jesus because I think it would be better news for the whole world. But it is hard. I ain't lying. Super painful. Which is what we'll hear in the middle of the words that Jesus uttered during his passion, his death. This is hard stuff that can make us feel forsaken. But I believe practicing this kind of hard stuff is the way that we get better at it. When we live it in three-dimensional life, we don't think it in a two-dimensional list of things to do. So let me dive into the dying process of Jesus so that we maybe can get ourselves equipped for, oh, this is what happens when you die like Christ. The first thing Jesus says, and you can put it up on the screen, as he begins laying down his life for the love of the world, is this. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Why don't you say that second part together here? We extend grace even to those who are crucifying us, and even before they ask, even when they don't even know they need it. This is the hardest part first. So in dying, if God can get you over this hump, it's possible you'll keep dying. But you got to start by forgiving people who, it seems, know what they're doing. 
This is what Jesus says. If you want to lay down your life for the world, you're going to have to forgive the people who are hurting you. It's a good thing to start with the toughest part. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. After the nails are driven through Jesus' hands and feet, after the post is roughly put in the ground, and gravity pulls the full weight of Jesus' body and nerves against those nails, Jesus says in that moment, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. With the crowd's chant of crucify him, crucify him, still in his ears, while the rulers are sneering and the soldiers are still mocking, Jesus says, God, could you just forgive give them all. They didn't ask. They didn't know they needed it. And Jesus says, Father, will you forgive even those who don't know they need it? It seems that Jesus doesn't wait for people to have the right heart. He doesn't need a perfect apology. He doesn't even need a long drawn out confession about why they're wrong. Jesus is so eager to forgive people. Jesus so wants you and I to be free from the state mistakes we've made that he's already forgiving us. Well, we're crucifying him. Now, let me tell you why I think the timing is so important in our desire to lay down our lives or our living. Because when human beings are in crisis, our truest self comes out. You know what that's like, right? You're like, you say, oh, I'm so patient. (laughs) Then you're like late for work or school and you're flipping off the car in front of you. You do that, right? I'm like, I'm not the only sinful one. Uh, oh, you're all generous. And then, and then you have something that you just have to have, a little something for you. And it's like there's a lock on your wallet, right? Or you talk all about forgiveness, and then you get hurt. And suddenly you get like all the religious people that Judas met, and you say, what is that to me? When human beings are in crisis, our true selves come out. And as far as I can tell, being crucified is a bit of a crisis. This is why this is important to know. Uh, Because when you're being crucified, those deep things that you still have to work on are going to come up. It doesn't absolve you of having to work on them. It helps you identify like, oh, I got issues. Right? And and, But do you see Jesus' true self? Jesus, when he's in the most pain, he says, I want to forgive everybody that's causing me pain. Dying like Christ... Dying for the love, laying down our living in real life begins with a willingness to forgive people, a heart for the other even before they know how to ask for it. I know that for some of you it's a big ask. You come in with real wounds from some real people, you have felt things that feel like real nails being driven into your life, and the weight of what was done to you is like gravity pulling against those nerves all the time. I know it's a big ask, but would you be willing to consider following Jesus? Not waiting for people to have the right heart, not waiting for a perfect apology, but instead asking God to forgive this person or these people. I want to tell you, I have people that are not yet, not yet forgiven in my life. But I also want to tell you, I'm absolutely committed to this pattern. I am in the act of trying to forgive people. And sometimes I begin with, God, I want to want to, right? But I am committed to this until it is finished, until it is brought to completion, which means that you could ask me, Judy, how's that forgiveness work with your dad? Judy, how's that forgiveness work uh, uh, with the church? Judy, you should ask me because I'm committed to doing this till it is finished. And it's going to feel wrong. Man, people should pay for what they do wrong. 
I'm not saying they shouldn't. It's just that because of Jesus, we don't pay for what we did wrong. And so I'm inviting us to follow him. Not just by dying for him, but dying like him. And the life-laying thing he did first was to like let go and not take back the right to be right. <laughs> he laid it down while they're crucifying him. This is so hard, but I'm convinced it's better news to die loving than to die fighting for those things where we know people are wrong. If we live the gospel in this forgiving way, forgiving those who hurt us, the gospel, I think, would begin to defend itself. Oh, these are those people that follow that type of God that forgave people before they knew how to ask for it. The second thing that Jesus says is found in Luke 23, 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think this is the second way that we lay down our lives or the second piece of the paradigm. Go ahead and read it with me. On the worst day of someone's life, we offer them the best news. We have a God who does not count our sins against us, who has no prerequisites or requirements to be in a relationship with him. If you want to lay down your life, we become the no prerequisite people. That, that, what, that's what it means. We, we don't have prerequisites for how we love people or how we include them, which I think is better news uh, th- than what most people are doing. It's, it can be hard, but I believe it is better news. A life laid down for the world has to practice this kind of inclusive heart. Jesus says to this criminal who's hanging on the cross next to him, a criminal who has asked for this crazy favor, um, can, can um, you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, totally. Today we'll be together in paradise. These are perhaps the most clear words from Jesus to any one individual in the whole gospel concerning their eternal state. I tell you the truth, on this very day, on this day you're being rightfully punished for how you screwed up, on this very day, when the world wants to see you die, at the end of this crucifixion day, I want to see you live with me in paradise. Jesus gives the worst guy the best news, and the guy does nothing to earn it. In fact, he can't change one thing in his life, and Jesus rewards him. You realize this is downright scandalous to love this way. In front of all the rule following, make up what you did, wrong requiring religious people, Jesus says to the rule breaker, the one who can't fix anything, I got you. But the religious say to be saved, oh, you got to be good first, wrong according to this. But to be saved, he's got to confess each of his sins and apologize, not according to the Bible. Now, come on. He's got to at least have some correct theology about who Jesus is. You've got to know what you believe about Jesus to be saved. Well, apparently not. The criminal is hanging on the cross next to Jesus. He's nailed in place. He can't move. He cannot get down. He cannot do good deeds. He's not even going to get baptized unless Jesus spits on him. <laughs> I mean, he's just fixed in place. He can't shift his orientation, which means no matter how much he may want to change or other people would want him to change, he is stuck in one place without a clear picture of Jesus. And Jesus says, I got you. See, Jesus always picked the worst people with the most obvious sins and offered them the assurance of salvation, the prostitutes, the possessed, the tax collectors, the criminals, because he wants us to be clear Man, if this is possible, then geez. If we want to lay down our lives not only for Jesus, but like Jesus, there can be no conditions on who we offer a second chance to 
or another and another after that. We must lay down our life not only for the righteous, but if we want to lay it down like Christ for those who are known to be guilty. The third thing Jesus says while, we're laying, while laying down his life comes from John 19, 26 and 27. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Let's say this together. We join Jesus in creating a new kind of family that is not defined by genetics, but by our deep desire to be brothers and sisters across all boundaries the world has created. And I could have said siblings there, because I know not everybody identifies as a brother or sister. But, but the deep thing that we're invited to do here is to create a family. A life laying down love means that we move beyond what is natural, which is to love your nuclear family who is like you. But Jesus, while he is dying, says to this mother, his mother, and to this man who is not her son, why don't you all be family? Life laying down loves means that we commit to creating families across gender, race, ethnicity, orientation, culture, sins, mistakes. We forgive willingly and love unconditionally, yes, but because we have an end goal with this love, that there would be a family that nobody has ever seen, where, where, where we could say of anybody, hey, I'm your mom, even though I didn't birth you. You're my kid, even though I just met you. People living together, claiming one another, reconciled because we've been forgiven and reconciled and claimed by God. Life laying down love means that we don't just focus on and defend our nuclear family. It means that we become this bigger family. And this is better news, but it is not an easy life. And I want to be clear about that. Which is why the next two statements made by Jesus are important for us to recognize in this mix. Matthew 27, 46 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Read this with me. We acknowledge that this is painful and difficult work and that we can bring our real pain to a real God who hears our cries for help. Again, I don't want to... If I pitch this to you, Just do this and it's going to feel awesome. I think the dopamine is going to get sucked out your right ear every time you you go to lay down your life. You You forgive those who hurt you. You love those who are messy. And you become a family with people who aren't natural. It's going to make you feel off. It's going to feel hard. And Jesus, when he's doing this, the reason I want to focus on this just for a minute is because in the middle of it all, it's super painful. And I think sometimes when we get to that place, like this is just too hard, then we think like, well, you don't want to be sinful. No, it is hard. And it's okay to say it's hard. That's what Jesus is saying. Like this doesn't mean it's not good. It just means it's hard and we can say so to God. This is a real life laying down expression. It's not sinful. Jesus did not sin and he said this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to say this. But I just want to encourage you that it it should not be the last word. And it's not the last word in our sequence. You, You shouldn't set foundations in this place. Like, man, this work just makes me feel forsaken. I'm living here in this bitter, cynical, forsaken place. You can camp out in a place that feels forsaken in a temporary structure, but don't be hauling in cinder blocks to forsakenness. 
And if you see someone else with a wheelbarrow full of cinder blocks, you should step in as the now body of Christ and say, this ain't the last word. And the next phrase testifies to how important your coming into that place is. John 19, 28 simply says, I thirst. There are times that we cannot reach a cool cup of water by ourselves, and it is good to remember that we need one another. And we must in turn stand close to those who are suffering so that we can hear when they need us, keeping in mind that I thirst is also not the last word. When Jesus utters these words, he's hanging on a cross. He has no access to water on his own. He has no hands to grab a cup. He can't get to the source of it by himself. There's no cool cup of water for him. I thirst, Jesus says. And again, this points to our human experience when things are hard. Our real needs are in this place. Loving other people will bring you to a dry and thirsty place. And it's okay to say, I need some help. I really want to help with the kids, but I'm dying. I'm dry and empty. Okay, let me pour into you for a couple weeks. But it's okay to utter it. It's not sinful to admit that you need help from someone else. Those standing at the foot of the cross soaked a sponge in wine vinegar, it says, and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. If we're going to lay down our life like Christ and for the love of the whole world, we're going to need help from one another. It's not sinful. Jesus just needed help. Laying down our lives to the world is too difficult to do on our own, which is why we join in a church and in a community. We will need one another if we're going to sustain this life laying down love. So let people know you're thirsty. Again, it's not sinful to have a need. And then if I can just prompt you uh, a little bit, because there are some of you in here that are not thirsty, right? But, but you need to hear the cries of those who are. And the people who heard the cries of the thirsty were those who stood closest to those who were actually suffering. And so if you are feeling all hydrated yourself, then can, can I encourage you to, to take up a post near the suffering? Because the end goal here is that none of us are thirsty anymore. And so it, it, maybe you want to take a, a, a post next to um, those who are experiencing racism. Can you hear them? They're like, I'm thirsty. Maybe you want to take a, a post near people who are DACA recipients, dreamers, people who are undocumented, but want to be and make a better life. Maybe you want to stand near because they're like, um, I'm thirsty. Uh, maybe you want to, to stand next to somebody who is from the LGBTQIA community that's like, I'm dying of thirst here. We want to be the people who can bring a cool cup of water into this place because we asked for help in a community that gave it to us. So we would then want to stand with anybody else who is thirsty. And this brings us to John 19.30. Um, three little phrases or words. It is finished. We carry on the work that God has given until it is completed, which means that until the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven or until Jesus returns, we are not finished, which most likely means we are not done till we're dead. Dying partway is a habit for many of us, or for a little while. We come in out of the gate all revved up. We're going to forgive those who hurt us until, like, Wednesday comes, you know. Uh, we're going to love each other without limits until, like, that person. And, and we're going to become a family across all divides, except for not that divide. 
But staying the course, being in till it is finished, uh, this is where it is important for us to, to, to really stay the course. Our willingness to carry on this work until it is completed. And, and, and it is finished. It can also be translated, it is accomplished. It is complete. And the kingdom of God is not going to be completed on earth as it is in heaven in my lifetime, I don't think. Or in yours. I mean, unless Jesus comes back. And I did drink my coffee really slow this morning asking him to do that. But he hasn't yet. Which means you and I are not done laying down our lives for the sake of love until we're dead. That's my next t-shirt idea. We're not done till we're dead. And, and, and this, is, this is the work. The final statement Jesus makes before his life laying down love is complete is found in Luke 23, 46. Father, into your hands I commend or commit my spirit. Let me read this. And we keep in focus the truth that God loves us too much to leave this kingdom work all up to us. God is a faithful God, and we can commend our lives and the results of laying down our lives like Jesus into God's hands. It is difficult to do this continually. The willing to lay down one's life for another, a friend, a sinner, an enemy... Therefore, has to end where it begins, with trusting our lives into God's hands. Laying down our lives like Christ means that we're going to trust the ultimates into God's equations. If we're going to lay down our lives like Christ, we've got to not freak out when there are only three Marys and a John bearing witness to our life laying down work. Uh, we, we, we can't worry when the masses, maybe even our most intimate fellow disciples, get scattered when things get painful. We shouldn't panic when the most religious leadership mocks us, and we should expect nothing less than those in power to wash their hands of us. As for us, we just need to keep committing ourselves into God's hands. These are good and faithful hands of a good God who will not leave us or forsake us. And we know this because he first laid down his life for us, even when it was really painful for him. While we were crucifying him, he forgave us. While we were sinners far off from him, he claimed us. And Jesus is calling us to follow him, not just by laying down our lives for him, but to be passionately devoted to laying down our lives like him. This is not going to be easy. In fact, on many days, most days, it feels downright impossible to me. But this is the better news for the whole world is that there would be a group of people so passionately devoted beyond a t-shirt and a bumper sticker that they would actually follow Jesus into the greatest work that Jesus did, which is not as much always, or not only about how he lived, but it was about how he died. It is better news for the whole world. And I believe if we can trust our lives into God's hands, the world might just see a group of people who are following Jesus passionately by laying their lives down. And this would be good news of great joy for all people. This morning we come to the table, we come to the God who laid down his life in a real way, not in theory and not in his mind, but, but, but he lived his way into a new way of helping us think, to the point of even shedding blood. And the Apostle Paul says, ain't none of y'all sacrificed so far as to shed blood, so keep on going. But we remember today that Jesus did lay down his life for love. Um, and, and for the love of those who were actually crucifying him. For those who needed to know that even their sinful self could be invited into paradise. We come to the table to remember this. To ask God for the courage to have this kind of life laying down love. 
that maybe even today, because you are forgiven, you will want to forgive. That because you are invited to this table, you would want to make it bigger so everybody can come. That because we're a family that is around here, you might want to remember to be family with those who may not be invited today. That, that indeed this might be hard work. He was indeed um, symbolized by broken bread and poured out wine. This means it's been cut apart and squeezed. And that will leave us often thirsty. But let's do this work until it's finished or until we're dead. And, and, and let's do this all while we commit ourselves into the, 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 into the life of a God who would love us this much as to lay down his life for us. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. All like this. Oh, it's going to be hard. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the new promise. As often as you drink it, do it in remembering me. It means to put him back into your membership, not just the way he lived, but the way he died. And, and, and as, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again for all of us. So let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you that you indeed are at this table, that you are our gracious host, that nobody else owns this table but you, and that you welcome everybody, even the person on the cross who couldn't do anything good, even those who didn't even know they needed forgiveness, you say come. And so God, today we open this table to all who want to come and experience a God who would lay down his life for the love God, we pray that it would be remembered to us and that it would become part of our membership as well. Not just living like Jesus, but being willing to die like him as well. Be in this simple bread in this cup. May we know what it is to be broken and poured out for the sake of the world. Not just our friends, not just our family, maybe even the opposition, whoever that might be. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there is gluten-free and regu um, regular bread up here. There's also wine and juice. They're all labeled. You can come down by the center aisles and go back. You serve yourself um, here. And so um, you'll take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and take both of them at the same time. As I've said before, if Jesus floats away, just get a second piece. And um, <laughs> have as much of Jesus as you'd like. And um, we invite you to come and, um, as we're led in worship. Let me offer you the benediction. If you can stand, as I say to everybody, you should lift up your heads and, and receive absolute blessing at least once a week um, where you know you can do nothing to earn it, but God just wants to bless the socks off you. So here we go. May the God who loved the whole world so much that he simply couldn't stay away, so he put on skin to come and live with us and then to die for us in the person of Jesus Christ. May this God now go before you to guide the way into a life that not only lays down your life for Jesus, but lays down your life like Jesus. May this Jesus go behind you to encourage you to be smarter than your brain so that when it feels hard, you don't opt out, but carry this work on until it is finished. May Jesus be above you to watch over you you. May you know he hears the very honest cries for help. May Jesus go beside you to be your most intimate traveling companion. May you know that you are forgiven so that you can forgive. May you know that Jesus claims you as family so that you can reach across all divides and claim this thirsty world as your siblings. And may Jesus go within you to give you the peace that passes all understanding. This is a peace that makes no sense at all. A peace that comes when into God's hands we commit our lives. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, go in peace. 
For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com. Thank you.